Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. My Bible's open to Romans chapter 11. I invite your attention there. The text this morning, the first six verses, Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. The title of the message is Total Rejection. But you'll notice there's a question mark, so you have to say it in an interrogative tone. Total rejection? Because that's really what we're asking. Has God totally and forever and ultimately set aside the nation of Israel? That's what some are teaching today, even in the evangelical church, that God's done with Israel. He's washed his hands of them. He has no future plan for them. And over the next few Sundays here in Romans 11, we're going to show why that is not the case at all and why the Apostle Paul did not believe that. So let's read our text now. Romans 11.1, I say then, this is Paul speaking, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars and I alone am left and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And in the same way then, there has also come to be at this present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of this, his word. Now just to remind us. The theme of the book of Romans is the doctrine of justification by faith, which is the answer to the question, how can a person be made right with God? Within that theme, Paul is pausing for three chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11, to give an apologetic. That is a defense of why Israel's overall rejection of Jesus does not mean that God has failed. Because there were some incorrect inferences coming into Paul's ears that people were making about his gospel. Number one, if God has set aside Israel, as Paul says that God has temporarily, so that the gospel would go to the Gentiles, does not that mean that God's been unfaithful? Maybe even God's lying to Israel. Or at best, God intended to keep his promises, but wasn't able to, and that would make God less than omnipotent. Well, Paul can't countenance either of those things being true because he knows what's at stake. Even though many Gentiles were coming to faith at that time, if, if the idea got out that God could not be trusted or that he was not powerful, who wants to serve a God who's weak or dishonest, right? And so it would undermine the gospel message altogether. So Paul feels it necessary to take on these questions head on. So the question that Paul is addressing specifically has, has God failed because most Jews do not believe in their Messiah? And he gives the answer over and again, which is the strongest Greek negative phrase, may it never be. May genoito, God forbid, can't possibly happen, Paul says. And he gives a number of reasons here in these three chapters to prove his point. In chapter 9, for example, he says it has never been true that all Jewish people were true believers. He gave examples including Esau and Jacob. 
the brothers born of the same parents, had the same lineage, grew up in the same household. Uh, one was saved, one was not. Uh, he also said in chapter 10 that God predicted that many Jews would not believe and would be scattered. Many of the prophets predicted these things. And Paul relentlessly goes back to the scriptures. Doesn't have a lot of his own personal opinion. Doesn't have much psychology in proving his point. Paul goes to the scriptures to prove his point. And in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, we find that God predicted the lack of belief by the Jews. And then also in chapter 10, he ultimately gets to this point that the failure of most Jews to believe is not God's fault, but their own. Because they had great advantages. They had the Old Testament scriptures in its clear and its messianic prophecy. They had many great um, teachers, many great prophets, and yet they pursued, Paul says, a righteousness as it were by works rather than faith. That's why they missed the Messiah. So the point is God has not failed because many Jews are not being saved. That's the Paul, what Paul is making once again here in chapter 11. And the reason, the proof that he gives in chapter 11 that God's word has not failed is that some Jews are being saved. And he begins with the most obvious example, which is himself. Paul's Jewish and he's saved. Verse 1, the obvious truth. I say then, Paul, uh, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. The obvious truth is that Paul is saved, therefore God has not totally been in Israel. Now the specific issue that Paul is refuting is the issue of the extent of God's setting aside of Israel. Is it complete? Is it eternal? Uh, that is, has he washed his hands of them? Is he done with them? Has he set them on the shelf never to use them again? That's what I mean by totally rejected Israel. Now Paul has admitted already in this section that God has indeed set Israel aside as a whole so that the times of the Gentiles might come in. And the obvious truth is that the vast majority of new converts in Paul's day and in our own are Gentiles. However, the point that Paul is making here in chapter 11 is that this setting aside of Israel is three words. Listen to them. They are partial, which means not totally, temporary, that is there's a future, and meaningful, that is there's a purpose for God setting aside Israel temporarily and partially. And he begins with the first one. This is a partial setting aside. Not every Jewish person is set aside. God has not rejected, in other words, ultimately and forever his people. And he calls into question all the Jews that have been saved himself as the prime example. So Paul's saying, look, if you want a poster child for a Jewish person being converted and believing in the Messiah, it would be me. He said, I am an Israelite. Now he calls himself an Israelite, I think, to set him aside against a, a Gentile who might have been converted to Judaism. That is, he is a Jew by genetics, not just by religion or choice or culture. Uh, remember that Jacob, name meant trickster, and he was. He tricked his brother out of his birthright. But God changed his name to Israel, which means one who contends with God. I was reading that story just this week, how God wrestled with Jacob and how he pulled his hip out of socket and he limped, I take it, the rest of his life. But he left there at peace with God. He had contended with God and found peace. He was an Israelite. He said, I'm a descendant of Abraham. He goes back 
a generation ahead and appeals to the most revered of patriarchs, Father Abraham, the father of all those having faith. And he says, I can trace my genealogy all the way back to Abraham. Now, genealogy, probably not that important to most of us in here. Maybe some of you, as we get older, we start poking around. Uh, I found out this morning that I am distantly related to a member of our church who I've known for many years and didn't know it till this week. So we say about the Sanders family tree, don't shake it too hard. <laughs> but we all understand genealogical records. In, in Matthew chapter 1, you might go home and read this. Matthew's gospel begins with the genealogy of Jesus, showing that he can trace his ancestry all the way back to the promises that God made with David. Well, Paul says, I can trace my ancestry all back to Father Abraham. That was important to prove your Jewishness in those days. And he says, more than that, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Remember, there were 12 Hebrew tribes. Two of them remained faithful for a time, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. They stayed in around Jerusalem. The other 10, after the death of Solomon, separated into a northern kingdom. And they went into sin and were taken away more quickly than the southern tribes. And so to be of the tribe of Benjamin was a particular honor because the first Jewish king was of the tribe of Benjamin, the man Saul, who more than likely this Saul's mother named him for because they were both of the tribe of Benjamin. The point is this, Paul was indisputably Jewish and God saved him by grace through faith in Christ. And so to say that God has forsaken all Israel would be incorrect if only one were saved. But Paul says there's many others that are saved as well. The Jewishness of one man could be brought into question easily enough, so Paul doesn't lean on his own example. He does what he always does in his arguments. He leans on Scripture. And so secondly, Paul offers the historical reality of the Old Testament record. Look at verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they're seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now Paul uses a familiar Old Testament story that every Jewish child grew up memorizing. And he's saying this, God has never needed a majority to accomplish his purposes. Even the Old Testament, this is the case. I was thinking about examples of that this week, and I was reminded of the book of Judges. When Israel was being confounded by their enemies, the Midianites, and God sent an angel to a man, Gideon, who was minding his own business on his farm, and told him he was the one that God was chosen to lead the armies of Israel. And of course, Gideon was like some of us. He kind of doubted that, and he asked for a bunch of signs, and God graciously gave him those signs and he became convinced that this was God's will. And the nation became convinced that Gideon was their leader. In fact, so many became convinced that thousands of them showed up to be led by Gideon into battle against the Midianites. And you know what God said? Send them home. Don't need that many people. And he whittled them down to just 300 people. And of course, through those 300 men that Gideon led, God gave them a great victory and a spiritual revival, by the way. But the example Paul is using here is not of Gideon, it's of Elijah, a prophet of the Lord. And he is paraphrasing a story that happened in 1 Kings chapters 18 and 19. We don't have time to read both of those chapters, so let me summarize. The setting was in the 800s BC, 800 years before the birth of Jesus. 
The kingdom had been divided, as I said, into northern and southern tribes. The northern tribes had selected Samaria as their capital city and Ahab as their king. And against God's clear will, he said, don't intermarry with foreign wives. He did. He married a pagan princess from Sidon named Jezebel. And her name to this day is synonymous with sinfulness. Not only did Jezebel move into the palace, she brought with her 850 priests of the most corrupt sort who worshipped a false idol named Baal. And the word Baal means the Lord and Master. Now Ahab and every Jewish person knew there's only one true Lord and Master, right? But here's this false God and his priests making claim to being the true God. That's why Elijah eventually said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If our God is God, serve him. If their God's God, serve him. Can't sit on the fence. They were wanting to have it both ways. God's a jealous God. He won't share his glory with another. And so these 850 priests led by Jezebel led the people away. They tore down the holy altars to Jehovah and erected in their place shrines and temples to Baal. Elijah was distraught over this to the point that he called a showdown with the 850 priests on Mount Carmel. He said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to find out today who the true God is. And he told these prophets of Baal to build an altar to Baal, and they did. And they slaughtered a bull. He said, now pray to Baal to send fire and consume the sacrifice. And they did. And they prayed all morning. Nothing happened. He said, well, maybe he's asleep. Pray a little louder. And they began to hoop and holler and wail and jump back and forth over the altar. That didn't work, so they began to cut themselves. They thought a little bloodletting would get his attention. It didn't. Finally, when they were, gave up in exhaustion, it was Elijah's turn, and he erected his altar. Told them to drench it in water until it filled the trench all the way around. They put the sacrifice on there. They drenched it in water. And he prayed, and Jehovah God sent fire from heaven. And it lapped up the water, and it consumed the sacrifice. And Elijah says, we know now who the God of heaven is, right? And there was a revival seemingly took place. The people says, we've got to get rid of these bales. They tore down the shrines and the altars right around there on Mount Carmel. And they chased these priests down into the valley, and they killed them. Put them to death. Jezebel didn't like it. She put out a contract on Elijah's head and says he's going to be dead this time tomorrow. And he started running. He was an old man. And he ran. And he ran. He ran a full day's journey into the wilderness and collapsed in a heap under a tree. And he was so miserable and so worn out and so afraid. He said, God, just kill me now. That's what his prayer and then he began to moan and complain that I'm the only one that loves you. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. I alone am left, and now they're trying to kill me. That's called an Elijah syndrome. You ever had it? I've had it. I get symptoms of it nearly every year. When I read things on the Internet about what's going on in other churches and how the name of the Lord is not being honored and I know it's not true. Goodness sakes, I get to work every day with some of the godless people you'll ever meet. I know I'm not the only one, but it feels like that. I bet it feels like that for you when you go to work. It feels like you're the only Christian in the office. You young people go to your sports team and they're talking about things in the locker room you know they ought not. 
you can't participate and you feel like an outsider and it's like I'm the only one, Lord, that loves you. We need encouragement that we're not alone, don't we? I told you I love to go to this pastor's conference out in Southern California. The reason I go has changed over the years. When I was in my 20s, I went because I held some of those pastors on such a pedestal and such high esteem. I just wanted to be in their atmosphere. But now that I'm older, that's not attractive to me. The reason I go is I want to sit in a room with 3,000 other pastors <laughs> who believe the Bible's true, who can't sing any better than I can. And yet when they start singing the great hymns of the faith, they sing it with all their heart because they know the doctrine behind it is true. That's why you need to be at church every week. I sat in the balcony last Sunday and worship with you in a way I can't do when I'm the one preaching. And I thank the Lord that my children get to grow up in this church where they're not the only ones who love the Lord. Thank the Lord there are others that have not bowed the knee. And Elijah had to be reminded that, uh, Elijah, that's not so. You're not the only one. He said, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Why would Paul bring up this story? Because he's showing them that in every generation, it's always the case that God doesn't need a majority. They were saying, Paul, the majority of Jews don't believe in Jesus. It must not be true. He's saying God's never needed a majority to accomplish his will. He didn't have it in Elijah's day. He's never had it in any generation, and he doesn't have it in our generation. God is pleased most often to use a remnant. A remnant is a small sample representative of the whole. That is almost always how God works, and he's doing it today. Verse 5, he says, in the same way then, that is in the same way that God used a remnant in Elijah's day, there has also come to be at the present time, that was 2,000 years ago from our perspective, the present day from Paul's, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. And Paul didn't put a number on it as God did for Elijah. He just says, there's other Christians besides me. How do we know? Well, on the day of Pentecost, which had happened just a few years earlier, we know that Peter preached and 3,000 Jews were saved. We know as many as 20,000 believers were on the church roll in the city of Jerusalem. Many of them dispersed to other places and started churches wherever they went. All of these people, Paul was writing to, new Jewish believers. So he says there's a remnant today. And by the way, friends, there, there's still some Jews believing today. When I say that most of us are Gentiles, that is statistically true. But the word most doesn't imply all. Two weeks ago after I preached a message from the text before this one, and I said that God still has some Jewish believers in every generation. A couple stopped me right out in the hall and said, yeah, that's us. <laughs> and this morning I had another lady stop and said, yeah, that's me. Praise the Lord. The Lord continues to save a remnant of Jewish people. We had a dear brother in the state of Utah where we planted a church in St. George who was instrumental in getting that church up and going. Named David Bernstein is a converted Jew who loves the Lord. I thank the Lord for that man. Praise God. He has not totally rejected Israel. Totally rejected? Absolutely not. God forbid, may it never be. Thirdly, let's look at the sovereign purposes of God in all of this. Verse 6, 
But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So in verse 5, he says that God's got a remnant in this present time. And just like it was in the days of Elijah, all of it is by grace. Did you notice the phrase that God used when he described those 7,000 who had not bowed their knee to Baal? He didn't say, now Elijah, there's seven other people who have good sense like you do. He says, Elijah, there's 7,000 others who figured out the truth like you did. He didn't say that. He says, I have reserved for myself 7,000 others who have not bowed. Who gets the credit for that in that case? God, not man. That's what it's all about. Who gets the glory in salvation? That's why Paul says salvation is by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should what? Boast. God's not going to share his glory. God did this, and in every generation, he has a group of people reserved for himself. That was true in Paul's day. It was true in Elijah's day, and it's true in our good day. God has reserved for himself those who will not bow the knee to Baal. So let's ask ourselves a question then. Why is it that God most often uses a remnant and not a majority? Why does God use a small fraction of what we might expect? Well, a little confession, I'm not God. And I don't claim to have perfect understanding of what he does. But I do think there's a very clear hint about why God uses a remnant several places in the Bible. Maybe the clearest is the one I just mentioned from Judges, the story of Gideon. Judges 7-2. They were about to go into battle. Thousands of people had come out to Gideon to fight. He was excited. He knew the Lord was in it. Then the Lord said to Gideon, quote, the people who are with you are too many. <laughs> Can you imagine about to go into battle and God says, you got too many? what he said too many for me to give Midian into their hands for Israel would become boastful saying my own power has delivered me he says a very similar thing in first Corinthians chapter one and God is describing the content of the church he says not many wise not many noble not many of the beautiful people God has chosen the common things of the world to confound the wise. God's not going to put us in a position to taking the glory for himself. Can you imagine 300 men going out against thousands and winning easily? No one in their right mind would not see God's hand in that, right? God knows the pride of the human heart. He will not share his glory. Well, let's make some application to that. Number one, if you're here today and you've got an Elijah syndrome... You feel like you're the only Christian at your place of business. Maybe even in your own home you feel like a stranger because you're the only believer. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. We're living in a time where those of us of a certain age see the influence of Christians in the church declining precipitously in our own nation. Our culture going away from God and it breaks our heart. Look up. Our Lord is still on his throne. And hear this. He does not need a majority to do great things in our lifetime. In fact, he seems to delight in working through a minority. And let me get very specific to you lifelong Baptists. I know if you read the internet and you read newsletters, you know there's a lot of hand-wringing going on at the denominational level. 
Baptisms are down. Church attendance down. Church membership is down. What are we going to do? You think we serve a hand-wringing God? Look up. Our God is still on His throne. Now look, I'm a lifelong Southern Baptist. I was born on a church plant in a pioneer area. My parents left seminary to go to a pioneer area to plant a church. That's where I was born. I've been in this all my life. But let me remind you, there are other denominations than Baptists. There are other Christians who aren't Baptists. God doesn't need us. He's been pleased in His sovereignty to use us in a magnificent way all over the world. I celebrate that. But I'm going to tell you what I told the President of the Southern Baptist Convention this week. God doesn't need Southern Baptists to be the largest denomination in the world to get His will done. He's God. He sits on His throne. Look up, Baptist. We get to be a part of the remnant. And I would say to my Jewish friends who are here today, and likely there are some, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, maybe you came out because a friend invited you or some other interest you had, look to Jesus. Chapter 10 here in Romans says, all day long he is extending his hands to Israel. He is inviting you. Even though it's been 2,000 years since he ascended into glory, he is to this day in this age of grace inviting you and there are Jewish people being saved today and in every generation and if you're Jewish and if you come to Jesus we will welcome you to this church and you'll be part of First Baptist Church of Keller just as much as any Gentile maybe you're a Gentile unbeliever here today you came to church uh, because grandma made you or for some other reason I call you to look to Jesus as well Remember I said there are three words that describe God's setting aside of Israel for the time being. Number one, it's temporary. One day there's going to be a great ingathering of Jews, as we'll read in a few weeks. It's uh, partial. Not every single Jewish person rejects Jesus. And the third word, it's meaningful. God is using this epic of history with purpose. And if we read on into chapter 11, it says... Verse 11, I say then, speaking of Israel, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be, but by their transgression salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. One of the reasons that God has temporarily and partially set aside Israel and is bringing in Gentiles is to make the Jewish people jealous to want what Gentiles have, that close communion with God. Let me ask you something, dear friend, in application to where we live. Do you live your life so fundamentally different, differently than your lost and dying neighbor and family member that it provokes them to jealousy? Do they want in their life what they see in yours? Now be careful about asking the Lord to do that because he most always does that through hard times. Just like be careful praying for patience because he uses trials and tribulations to give you patience. Be careful saying, Lord, use my life to make my lost family members jealous. Because often it's those same trials and tribulations, which are, by the way, part and parcel of the human condition. We like to quote the verse that says, it rains on the just and the unjust. Now, we usually mean that positively. We got a good rain here over the weekend. The rain didn't stop on your property line, I take it, right? 
So we all need the rain. That's a good blessing. And your lost neighbors got that blessing too. But when it says it rains on the just and the unjust, we can take that negatively too. Both the just and the unjust suffer, don't they? They get sick. Their parents die. Their children have disappointments. So when your neighbors go through disappointments that are similar to the ones they've seen you go through, is there anything so different about the way you handle those hard times that they recognize immediately they have something I don't? And they're attracted to you and they say, tell me why you can live through this and not lose your faith and I fall apart at the least little thing. Wouldn't it be great if your neighbors came to you and asked that question? Be ready to give the answer. Be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you. You can say, well, look, I'm no different than you. I have pain and suffering. I bleed. But I know the Lord Jesus. And I know anything negative that happens in this life is temporary. And that he has promised me a home in heaven. And that if you'll put your faith and trust in him, no matter what you go through in this life, you'll spend eternity with him in glory. That's the reason for the hope that is within us. Yes, right now the Lord seems to have set aside Israel, but it's only for a temporary season. There's coming a great revival. It's partial. There's still Jews in every generation being saved, and it has a purpose to make them jealous as they see Gentiles coming to faith. Today is the day of grace. And whether you're a Gentile or a Jew, if you're lost here today, there's only one way to heaven. There's not a Jewish gospel and a Gentile gospel. The gospel is this. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Come to Jesus and be saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul, who so clearly teaches it here in Romans. Thank you for the Bible that preserves without error the gospel message. Thank you for many in this room who know you and have known you for years and who are ready if Christ would return today or if he would call them home through death. But Lord, we suspect in a room with this many people, there's some who don't know you. Maybe they're having doubts about their salvation. Maybe they've come to you like the nation of Israel in the time of Jezebel with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If God is God, serve him. If he's not, serve the devil. He is God. Father, I, I call the lost today to salvation. The promise of the, your word is whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, I pray that your spirit would move among us. And if there's even one lost person here today, that you would convict them of the truthfulness of this message they've heard. Sear it to their conscience, Father. Convince them of their personal sin and guilt, your perfect holy righteousness, and the judgment that is to come. And Father, may they run to Jesus for salvation. Father, whatever good you accomplish in and through us, we pledge to give you the glory for knowing, even as in the days of Gideon, you will not share your glory with another. Encourage us today that even though we're far from the majority anymore in the world, you still have a plan to use us. We pray all these prayers in the strong name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.